this month, we're going to be talking about coming together. And today, um, Mary Lee is going to be sharing with us. So would you guys pray with me? We're going to pray for her. So Father, I just thank you <laughs> that your design is that we are live in unity, that you are one, <laughs> Father, Son, Holy Spirit are one, and that you want us to be one with you. And with you means with one another. And that community unity is important to you. And that we are going to learn that today. And Father, I just thank you for Mary Lee and what you've put in her today. And I just pray right now that we would take off any blinders or distractions, that there's anything in our heart that we need to set aside, that we would receive the word from you. This morning as we were praying, I heard today would be a paradigm shift for some so that unity could happen in this community. In any way that there's been a disunity, today it would shift and that we would truly see unity. In Jesus' name, amen. So would you welcome her? Amen. Thank you, Kathy. I am Pastor Marilee. My husband and I are the associate pastors here. We started worshiping and serving here about 20 years ago. Yes, a long time ago when we were so young. <laughs> and now we have a 13 and 15-year-old. My husband and son are at the men's retreat. My wonderful daughter is here this morning. But I am so glad to share the first message in this new series called Godly Women. So what does it mean to live as a godly woman in our day? What's God's intention for women? Do any of you ever wonder about this? Did God create women equal with men, or are there certain roles that are off limits for her? Last week, I had a conversation with a young woman from our congregation, and she said, Merely, I grew up in a church, and my mom grew up in a church where women were not supposed to be in leadership, but what does New Day think? And she chuckled. She's like, obviously, they think it's okay. Um, you're a female pastor, and there's lots of female leadership here, but I think what she was wanting is, hey, would you put some words to why it's okay, or why some would think it's not, and just would you put some words to that for me? I don't think that she's alone. I think there's a lot of Christian women that are still wondering what it means to be a woman in the kingdom of God. You know, where is she supposed to stand? What exactly is she supposed to be? Many women and men, I think, are still feeling confused. So women, we need this message today so that we can accurately become all that God created us to be. And men, you need this message today for your wives and your mothers and your daughters and your sisters in Christ so you can encourage them toward what they're meant to be according to God's beautiful design. Now, this is a topic that has produced much conflict, hurt, and confusion. It's a centuries-long debated topic with countless books written, and so I might be crazy to try to tackle it in a Sunday morning. Um, but I'm not going to try to answer every question that this topic raises, and I don't have it all figured out. 
Um, but I do want to share with you the wisdom that I've learned along the way as I've had to seek out the answers for myself to these questions. So I hope to tread into this discussion with compassion and as intelligently as possible. I had to face my fears and questions head on about four years ago when Pastor Cameron asked me, Merrily, how do you feel about being ordained? Do you remember this conversation? <laughs> Well, before I finish that story, I am going to remember that I have a slideshow. <laughs> there are two sides of the gender debate. I just want to, in case you're not aware, there are those that believe there is no authoritative difference between men and women. That would be egalitarians. And those that believe that there are, that would be complementarians. And there's a wide range of beliefs within both groups. I grew up in a home in a church that landed more in the complementarian camp. So when Cameron asked me how I'd feel about being ordained, I remember my jaw dropped and I said, oh, I'm going to have to think and pray about that. I needed to seek the Lord and study scripture and make sense of the handful of confusing verses that seemed to say women in leadership was wrong. I asked the Holy Spirit to lead me and to settle this matter in my heart, then my intention was to wholeheartedly follow the calling that God had for me wherever it landed. I remember telling the Father, I just want to follow you. I just want to do your will. I don't care what that looks like. In that initial prayer session that I had with the Father before I even cracked open the Bible to study, um, he spoke to me and he said, Merrily, you'll lead like Esther. And I said, how did she lead? <laughs> and he said, I raised her up and I called her to lead my people, men and women alike. And all the while, she was fully submitted to me, her husband, and her spiritual leader, Mordecai. And so he said, that's how you'll lead. You step out, lead men and women alike but in unity with me, your husband, and Cameron. Okay, I need Mordecai. <laughs> He'll be Mordecai this morning. And then he said, many of those who oppose female leadership think they're upholding the Bible and genuinely want to do what it says. And then he said, some fear a female leader because of, like a Jezebel, because she was a woman in power who abused her power, was submitted to no one and brought destruction to those she's led. And so I shared that personal little story with you just because I wanted you to know that. As one of your pastors, I want you to know that that is my pledge to you and to the Lord of how I'm going to lead. Um, so that is my commitment. Never out of unity with um, God, but willing to go where he's called me to go. All right, let's dive into the learning. We're going to start when woman was created. In Genesis 1, we see a culminating moment in creation when God, having created all the living creatures according to their kinds, began to create a humanity according to his kind, according to his image filled with his breath. 
He created both male and female in his likeness and gave them a command. Let's read it. Genesis 1, 27 and 28. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every living creature that moves along the ground. So at the beginning of history, God created a man and a woman and told them both why they had been put on the planet. For both of them, the job description was the same. No role was reserved for one over the other. Both were created with equal value in the image of God. Both were created with equal authority given by God. That was the rulership. Not one gender was created with greater authority over the other. For then, they would not both, in fact, be ruling. And both were created with equal opportunities to fulfill the purposes of God. No role in the mandate was off limits for either gender created as two who were side by side. Isn't it significant that Eve was taken out of the side of Adam? And notice that their equality didn't mean uniformity. Eve was to rule as the female image bearer. Women reflect aspects of God that can't be reflected by a man. Man was to rule as the male image bearer. Men reflect aspects of God that can't be reflected through a woman equally wonderful sides of the same coin ruling together but radiating the multifaceted nature of God. In creation, God defined us. We cannot define ourselves, not accurately anyway, because we did not create ourselves. God must be our defining lens. If he's not, something else is. And that something else we've given more authority in our lives to than God. And if we do that, the way we view ourselves gets slanted away from a biblical direction. So what went wrong? Enter Genesis 3, the fall of humanity and the subsequent curse. We know the story tragically well. The serpent came and spoke to Eve with carefully worded half-truths, suspicions, and promises. He won Eve's heart, and ultimately she believed him. Subsequently, Adam chooses Eve's will over God's. They gave in to the temptation before them, and the course of history was forever altered as a result. They tried to hide because they were ashamed of their nakedness. When questioned by God, they both shifted blame, and there what is what is now an all-too-familiar power shift declared in the curse, where male and female were no longer on equal footing. But he would rule over her, and her desire would be for her husband. Her desire is a word that not only means her desire to be with him, but has the sense of wanting to overcome him. In the fall, harmony, equality, safety, and unity are replaced with shame, blame-shifting, division, and power play. 
This is the first hint we get of gender superiority and authority, and it's not good. The story would be utterly hopeless without the redemptive plan of God being woven in the midst of the brokenness. Even while pronouncing the curse, God spoke the solution in a promise that pointed to Jesus. As we've been celebrating the past several weeks, Jesus is the one who has brought complete resolution to all that was lost in the garden by way of the cross and resurrection. Not only in terms of breaking the curse of sin and death, but also by restoring what was intended from the beginning for male and female to stand alongside one another, not over one another. During my study, I wondered something. I wondered why would some think it spiritual or right to work to maintain the curse? He would rule over her as part of the curse, as if that was God's perfect plan. It would be like saying, men, you didn't sweat enough today. I need a full pint of sweat before you can eat. (laughs) Because through the sweat of your brow and through painful toil, you will eat. So let's put some rules and some parameters to make sure you've worked hard enough today. Don't even think about trying to remove the thistles or the thorns in the way from your work. Let's pour miracle grow on them because we want that curse thriving. Isn't that funny? That's like strange. Okay. How does Jesus' ministry speak to us about God's design for women? Jesus wasn't simply kind. women. He was revolutionary. The culture of Jesus' day was patriarchal, even misogynistic, which means strongly prejudiced against women. To understand how severe, the first century rabbi Eliezer stated, rather should the words of the Torah be burned than entrusted to a woman. Whoever teaches his daughter the Torah is like one who teaches her lasciviousness, which is crude sexual behavior. And that wasn't isolated thinking. The Talmud states, let a curse come upon the man who must have his wife or children say grace for him. In the daily prayers of the Jews, there was a line of thanksgiving which said, praise be God that he has not created me a woman. Ben Sirach, an early second century scholar, stated a daughter was a total loss and a constant potential source of shame. So faced with these glimpses into Middle Eastern attitudes, we have no choice but to view Jesus' interactions with women as totally revolutionary and offensive. In the practice of Jesus' ministry, at great risk to his own reputation, he shattered numerous taboos related to male-female contact and association. Far from the shunning of women that would have been appropriate during the time, Jesus addressed women personally and taught them theology. He taught equality of marriage rights between husbands and wives. He allowed women to be with him. And these were not just sweet acts of kindness. He was fully aware of how radical he was being. Just think of all the firsts that Jesus chose to designate to a woman. The news of the incarnation 
was brought to Mary, a teenage girl, when it would have been much more culturally appropriate to bring it to her father or her fiancé or the high priest. Also, the first, whoops, the, first American, the first Samaritan convert is a woman. The first Gentile convert is a woman. The first resurrection teaching is given to a woman, Martha. The first witness to the resurrection is Mary Magdalene. Jesus chose to reveal the reality of his resurrection to a woman whose testimony would not hold up in the court of law, who, a woman who would never be given the time of day, a woman whom his male disciples would not believe and would be later rebuked for in Mark 16, 14. Jesus intentionally and radically disturbs the cultural order of his day again and again. Let's zoom in on a story of his interaction with Mary and Martha. Now, isn't this story just about two sisters fighting about chores? Is there more here? There is. <clears throat> so Jesus and his disciples were at Lazarus, Mary and Martha's house, and Martha was busy with all the things that would have needed to be done to host the rabbi. Mary, on the other hand, was sitting at the feet of Jesus listening to him. Martha looked to Jesus to pull her sister back in line, but unbelievably, Jesus refused and supported Mary's decision. Okay, so what was really going on here? Is there more going on? To understand the radical transaction, we have to understand that Jewish men and women didn't socialize in mixed crowds. The men stayed with the men, busying themselves with important conversation and listening to the rabbi. The women stayed with the women, busying themselves with the cooking and the preparing and the serving. Learning from the rabbi was not included in the list of appropriate behaviors for Jewish girls. But Mary had other ideas. <laughs> she wanted the same access to Jesus that the men had, and so she sat at his feet. To sit at someone's feet means to assume the posture of discipleship. It doesn't mean that she was literally like by his feet necessarily, but that is to assume the posture of discipleship. Essentially, she was volunteering herself as a disciple in that moment. And Jesus not only allowed it, he commended it, and he refused to rebuke Mary. Thus, Mary became a disciple of Rabbi Jesus. It was also radical because discipleship was not just about learning. The purpose of discipleship was clear, to do what the rabbi does. Even to teach as the rabbi teaches. So what Mary did and what Jesus endorsed was revolutionary. In a moment, we're going to look at some of the Pauline texts that seem to raise issue with equality for women in regards to their equal value, authority, and gifting with men. But it's important to let Jesus' teachings and interactions with women inform our understanding of gender roles. We must not ignore what Jesus demonstrated as we read Paul's teaching in a handful of verses, especially in view of the fact that the majority of the verses from, Paul's, from Paul are in complete agreement with the model we see in the Gospels. Jesus' disciples got it. Where there once would have been gender separation in Jewish worship, in Acts 1, men and women are praying and worshiping together as they wait for the Holy Spirit. 
Peter Webb shared about Pentecost last week. In Acts 2, when we see when the Apostle Peter stands up to explain what's going on, he quotes verses from the prophet Joel about the last days. Notice that the last days began when the church was birthed. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and my female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. It is clear that the coming of the Spirit signals a level playing field for all people from all walks of life. There is equality at work for both genders. This equality continues with the involvement of the young and old in a society where the youth would have had to defer to the mature. This was quite remarkable. So the point is not who is seeing the dreams and visions. The point is that no matter the race, gender, age, or class, all are included in the empowerment of the Spirit. Yes, what a profound example of equality. All right, now let's look at some of the verses that give complementarians their footing. I'm going to speak briefly to the questions they raised, but I encourage you to study further on this topic. And if you um, are interested, this is an amazing book um, that shares both sides and is just brilliantly written. It's called Equal by Katya Adams, K-A-T-I-A. Um, so we're going to look at two controversial sections in the book of 1 Corinthians. The first one is in 1 Corinthians 11.3. Paul teaches. Now, I want you to realize that the head of every man I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. What did Paul mean by the word head used repeatedly in verse 3? Well, it's likely that kafale means source rather than authority. Let me explain. The sentence consists of three couplets, each illustrating a relationship of headship, a relationship of headship. In each couplet, the word head is the Greek word kafale. Now, in English, we understand the word head to mean authority or leadership. That's normal for our language. That's not the case in Greek. And we learn this from how the Greeks translated the Hebrew Old Testament. So whenever the word head was used in the Hebrew text to convey a meaning of leadership, the Greek translators chose words other than kafale for the Greek translation. Also, the progression of the verse is intriguing. If Paul was meaning head to signify a hierarchy of authority or leadership within the couplets, it would have made sense for him to open the sentence with the Christ-God couplet, as that is the pairing with the highest authority. However, if source is how we are meant to read head, then Paul has put the couplets in logical order, in an order that's chronological, not hierarchical. Man came from Christ's creative work, 
woman came from man because she was taken out of his flesh, and Christ came from God in the incarnation. This verse takes a whole new meaning when we understand the word kafale. The second tricky section on gender roles in is in 1 Corinthians 4, 33-35. Here Paul is teaching on matters relating to worship in the community. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, I used to just like, I don't know what that means, and just like skip past it. I'm done doing that. No, we're going to look at these and and figure them out. We want to do what what God says. So, now, the trouble with assuming that Paul wanted the women in Corinth to stay completely silent in the church is that we have verses that assume women will be speaking in the community, prophesying and speaking in tongues, for example. And because I do not believe that Paul was double-minded, there is good reason to believe that he is stating a view contrary to his own thinking, like quoting a slogan from a Corinthian prophet. But the amount of commentaries on this particular passage is a massive. So suffice it to say, there are clearer texts to justify gender roles in the church. Some might wonder about this verse from 1 Timothy 3 in regards to gender. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, self-controlled, and the list goes on of the qualities required. So when we read a verse like this, does it mean that only men can have this role of leadership in the church? No. It doesn't mean that because Greek is an androcentric language, which means focused or centered on men. That's how the language is built. So that means it's most natural in the Greek language to use masculine terms when addressing both men and women. And therefore, we must read through that lens. We understand it to mean brothers and sisters. Unless there is an explicit exclusion of women... The language itself doesn't assume that exclusion, so we would be incorrect to do so. Okay, you guys like this? I'm just like going after these verses. Okay, here's the hardest one, okay? This one's caused the most debate. It's in 1 Timothy 2. Now, unlike most of Paul's letters, 1 Timothy was not a letter written to address an entire community. This letter was written to Timothy to help him as he was leading this unwieldy church. He, Paul's teaching him how to address those who were leading this church into error, how to correct false ideas that had been spread, and how to set up protective, even restrictive practices that would safeguard this community from further error and restore it to health. So here are um, some of the issues that this church was facing. 
false teaching regarding instructions on the law and ancestry, commands to abstain from marriage and certain foods, a focus on myths and knowledge, anger and quarreling amongst the men, immodest dress amongst the women, women professing devotion to God while living otherwise, argumentative learning amongst the women, unrest because of how women were exercising authority over men, women being deceived, friction, envy, slander, and suspicion amongst the community. Yeah. Like, oh. <laughs> oh. So, another thing to understand before we dive in. Ephesus was a cultural and religious melting pot. You had those that were committed to the practices of Orthodox Judaism. There was a good measure of sorcery and witchcraft. And there were those that worshipped at the temple of Artemis. They believed that the female was exalted and considered superior to male. That is how their whole religion worked. I'll just note, a gender imbalance the other direction doesn't solve the problem. It creates a different problem, just a different imbalance. Also, there was a movement among the women at the same time called the New Roman Woman, where women achieved unprecedented financial independence and social freedoms and threw off sexual restraint and modesty. So into this context, you had the planting and growing of a Christian community. Clearly, these strong religious forces would butt heads on many issues and would need adjusting as they learned what it meant to be the people of God. Let's read verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. That was another one I would just kind of skip over most of my life. I'm like, oh. Okay, in Greek, I love learning. So great. In Greek, these verses are actually one sentence, and they open and close with the same word. Doing that was a literary device to emphasize your main point, whatever your first and last word was. The first and last word in this sentence is hexuhia which means quietness. Unfortunately, translated silence, but not likely his meaning given the context. When Paul uses it elsewhere, it's never about volume. The principle Paul is combating here is this combative, quarreling, divisive culture. So he's speaking encouragement to the believers to be peaceful and quiet, cooperative and caring, not never speaking. Simply put, hexuhia is not an anti-speaking, but an anti-divisiveness word. When Paul says, let a, we're going to just kind of zero in on a couple spots here. When he says, let a woman learn in science with all submission, Paul is asking the women to learn, which would have been a big deal to the Orthodox Jew, but he wants them to do so peaceably rather than argumentatively. And surely any learning that's going to be effective needs to be done in submission to the teacher or it's just not going to work. So does this mean that men didn't need to learn in submission? What do you guys think? 
No, but it highlights that in this community, it was the women who were having trouble with this. Probably because the males would have been well-versed in how to be a student from childhood. Also, the male ringleaders of false teaching had already been excommunicated from the church in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. Likewise, when Paul teaches the men to use their hands for peace, he's not telling the women it's okay to be violent. He's just saying in that community, violence was an issue for the men, not the women. Okay, the next section, to have authority. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. The word that means to have authority is unfortunately not a straightforward word to understand. Paul uses authentau here, which doesn't appear anywhere else in the Bible. Making it difficult to fully understand its meaning, there's nothing to compare it to or to learn from. It's a strange word choice if Paul was trying to communicate generic authority as he had at his disposal the word exousia which is the common Greek word for authority, a word which he used many times in his letters. Because he didn't use it here, it's likely that he had a different meaning in mind. Scholars point to a few possible meanings of authentau to assume authority over, to dominate, to flout the authority of. Peace and unity are what Paul wants upheld. He wants measures in place to stop what is divisive in the community and to safeguard it from further error. So when Paul withholds permission for women to teach and to exercise authority, he's not communicating his broad theological stance. In fact, Paul commends and honors and trusts women with roles that would have involved both teaching and exercising authority. In Romans 16, Phoebe is introduced as a deacon. Priscilla is commended as a fellow worker, which is the same ministry descriptor given to Timothy. And many more women are honored, and not in terms of their great character, although I'm sure they did have great character, but in terms of their great ministry. We have examples of women who were deacons and apostles and prophets, evangelists, and teachers. <laughs> Junia is perhaps one of the most significant New Testament examples of a woman in leadership. She's mentioned in one verse in Romans 16, 7. She is in the same category of apostleship as Barnabas, Apollos, and James. Here we have an example of a woman operating in the highest authoritative gifting that the modern church experiences, and she's praised for being outstanding in that group. The named examples of women in ministry give us serious reason to doubt the legitimacy of any teaching that claims God intended for there to be a limit to the roles women could have. <clears throat> I do love a good example to follow. When I, when I learn something, I like to have a good example to follow. Maybe it's the trait of being second-born. Um, but in the Trinity, we have a beautiful example to look to for how men and women can relate 
because hierarchy is not a feature of the Trinity's relationship. The persons of the Trinity all have equal authority. The early church creeds went to great lengths to communicate that. We read the Nicene Creed this morning, that there's equality of the Son to the Father, the Father to the Holy Spirit. Equal to lead, command, and act, depending on the moment. They work in collaboration, not hierarchy. A beautiful collaboration of three distinct persons of equal value, authority, and substance. We need to learn from that and have fluidity where both men and women have the authority to step up and lead as the moment demands. And that is our goal here at New Day. So in practice, we choose roles based on gifts and abilities, not gender. And we're called to mutually submit to one another. And the best way to do this is to submit to each other and each other's strengths and gifts. For Bill and I, um, whoever is best suited to meet the need of the moment takes center stage. When one is leading, the other is help and support, like we see in the Trinity. For example, when one of us is working on a sermon for Sunday, preparing to lead in that way, the other will do more driving for the kids that week or do more in the kitchen to keep it clean. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks of married couples making decisions, particularly about sexual intimacy by agreement. This is a great model to follow for all marriage decisions since sexual intimacy reflects the core of marriage unity. So I hope that this sermon has helped to settle some unanswered questions that many of you may have had regarding God's design for women. And I pray that you will blossom in the truth that you receive. The worst thing that could happen is because of misunderstanding about a handful of verses in the Bible, women, you abdicate your role and you don't become what God has called you to become. So we, I really want us all to get this and pursue this so that we can all become what God has called us to become. So in conclusion, we saw how in Eden, both the man and the woman were given the mandate to rule together. We saw how Jesus radically released women to be more than the culture of his day thought appropriate. We saw Paul's discussions in 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy are not a good basis to limit women's roles across the board in Christian community as Paul was addressing issues based on what was at work in that community. And we saw how Paul wholeheartedly commended and honored women who held positions of significant authority. So I charge you men and women today if full equality is what God always purposed, then represent the nature of God that you were uniquely designed to express. Women, bring your full femininity with confidence and humility. Men, bring your full masculinity with confidence and humility. How do you express the nature of God? I want you to think about that this week. Is it through protection? Is it through offering cover? 
Is it through fierce love? Is it through kindness? Is it through compassion? Is it through being an accessible place for others to come? Is it through generosity, forgiveness, providing a safe place for others to rest or grow? Is it nurture? Is it feeding? Is it nourishing? These are all things that God is that we express. So church, let's come together and reach our God-intended potential side by side. Kathy? Wow, that was so good. Uh, that was so good. I just want to take a moment right now. If there's any way, any area that you have um, maybe thought differently than, than what God thinks, you know, each one is created in the likeness of God. Do you believe that? We all represent God, whether you're a man or a woman. You represent God. He created you in his likeness. I was reading this morning, he, he desires that all be saved. He wants all of us to play our part. And I, I would agree with Mary Lee. I've struggled with some of those scriptures. I've had people come up and say to me <laughs> some of those scriptures. Um, and so do the research for yourself. Find out for yourself. You dig into the Greek. You dig into the Hebrew. You find commentaries. And not just one side. I remember Pastor Cameron saying one time, you know, if you only get one side of the story, you're going you're gonna to veer off in the wrong direction. Find out whatever, what both sides think. And then and go to God with it and ask him. So right now, would you just bow your head? Father, I just pray right now that we would understand your design for each of us. We would come to an um, understanding of who you've placed in authority and what authority looks like. And if we're following Jesus' authority, it would be to serve one another. And what does that service look like for us? Help us to understand your design for each one. And help us to honor those that you've put in charge. In Jesus' name.